Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange... The Bizarre, The Unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. Hey, we want to start this episode by welcoming all of our uh, new subscribers, people that have recently joined us. We uh, we saw a big influx of, uh, of subscriptions and downloads this past week. I think mostly due to the fact that... Uh, Dan and Lindsay from Scared to Death podcast uh, talked about us. Yeah, a few people mentioned that, and we appreciate you so much uh, giving us a shot and uh, sticking around, hopefully. And when you tell somebody about the Box of Oddities and they start listening, uh, that's the best way for us to, to, to grow the podcast, because ultimately our goal is to be able to do this full time. Mm. Just this is all we want to concentrate on. I mean, we, that's all we concentrate on now. But, <laughs> Pretty much. But, yeah, it's become problematic. Problematic, actually. But, but we would really love to uh, just give you guys all kinds of uh, added value and content as we continue to grow. So thanks for hanging out with us. And again, big thanks to Dan and Lindsay for the shout out. So I'm just going to get right into it. Here we go. Oh, okay. On Friday, November 22nd, 1963, the 35th president of the United States was assassinated. John F. Kennedy, of course. We've been taught for generations that it was a lone wolf attack. This is what they teach us in history class, that Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone, Mm -hmm. though this is certainly plausible. We'll never know Oswald's story other than he claimed to be a patsy because he was offed in the parking garage within days of the Kennedy assassination by by Jack Ruby. This was before any serious interrogation could be done. Jack Ruby admitted to reporters that there were more people involved in the assassination When he said, quote, the people that had so much to gain and had such an ulterior motive for putting me in the position I'm in will never let the true facts come above board to the world. One reporter then asked Ruby, are these people in very high positions, Jack? And then Ruby just simply said firmly, yes. Now, we've all heard all the conspiracy theories, or certainly most of them, but I came across a few things that I had not heard before, and, you know, I'm 
pretty obsessed with the Kennedy assassination. Yeah, 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 it's a problem. There was a bunch of stuff that happened that's documented in police reports prior to uh, the assassination that would lead one to believe that there's more to it than we know. In other words, about 13 different people predicted that this was going to happen. Oh, really? Yes. And I don't mean like psychic predictions. (laughs) These are people that made reports to the police department based on information that they had claiming that they had heard that Kennedy was going to be assassinated and nobody really did anything about it. That's interesting. I'm not going to go through all 13 of them, but here are a few. And this is according to an article in Medium by J.L. Pattison. He's kind of a lifelong student of the JFK assassination. Okay. Bit of an expert. On November 9th, 1963, a guy named Joseph A. Miltier, who was a segregationist, a JFK hater. He had ties to uh, other people who hated JFK, JFK, as well as ties to those uh, suspected of bombing the Birmingham, Alabama church that killed four children. He was uh, connected to white supremacist groups of the time. And he was recorded by the Miami Police Department, unbeknownst to him, while he was uh, speaking with an informant, a guy named William Somerset. And this was in Somerset's third floor Miami apartment. So Somerset was an informer? Most people don't realize that that mid-90s hit by snow was based on a early 60s hit by Oswald. Um, so here's the thing. I'm going to play you a clip of the audio. This is uh, this is the actual audio from the police surveillance. Okay. Well, I have the best way we'd be here. Uh, coming off this building, uh, the building with a high fire. Maybe he knows he's a monument. They're going to really try to kill him. So the audio is really kind of hard to hear in some places. So here's the transcription. Somerset says, I think Kennedy is coming here November 18th or something like that to make some kind of speech. I don't know what it is, but I imagine it'll be on TV. Miltier says, you can bet your bottom dollar he's going to have a lot to say about the Cubans. There are so many of them here. Somerset, well, he'll have a thousand bodyguards. Don't worry about that. Miltier, the more bodyguards he has, the easier it is to get to him. Somerset. What? Miltier, the more bodyguards he has, the more easier it is to get to him. Somerset, well, how in hell do you figure it would be the best way to get to him? Miltier, from an office building with a high-powered rifle. Then the conversation continued. Somerset said, do you think he knows he's a marked man? Miltier says, I'm sure he does, yes. Somerset, are they really going to try to kill him? Miltier, oh yes, it's in the working. Somerset then continued, hitting this Kennedy, I'll tell you, is going to be a hard proposition if the Secret Service covers all the office buildings. Miltier said the Secret Service is not suspecting the assassination. It then talked about how he could conceal the weapon. And again, remember, this is, wow. bef- this is before the assassination took place. Well, yes. He said, you wouldn't even have to take a gun up there. Just take it up in pieces. All those guns come knocked down and you can just take them apart. He then... Miltier revealed the plan for a patsy. He said, quote, hell, they'll pick up someone within hours. If anything like that would happen, just to throw the public off. No date of the assassination was discussed and no no city was was talked about. But because this conversation between these two guys took place in Miami and JFK was due to visit Miami nine days later on the 18th of November 1963, measures were taken and security was upgraded for the president's visit in Miami. In Miami. According to page 233 
of the White House Select Committee on Assassinations report, warnings of the Joseph Miltier threat were dispatched to Miami, Atlanta, Indianapolis, Nashville, Philadelphia, and Washington, but was totally ignored by the Secret Service personnel in planning the trip to Dallas for some reason. Just geographically, it was further away, so... (laughs) We don't know. Well, assassins don't go outside a 200-mile range, so we know that. Is that the rule? (laughs) (laughs) The Assassin's Creed? Yeah. Uh, The report further pointed out that, quote, two threats to assassinate President Kennedy with high-powered rifles, both of which occurred in early November 1963, were not relayed to the Dallas region. Shit. So... On November 22nd, 1963, when Kennedy was assassinated, where was Joseph Miltier? Mm-hmm. Well, there's a photograph of a crowd standing on Houston Street in Dealey Plaza, watching the presidential motorcade pass by on its way to taking Kennedy through the kill zone. In that crowd, Joseph Miltier is standing there. Oh, really? Waiting to watch it happen. Ooh, that seems... So the day after the assassination, Miltier and Somerset met again. They got back together. This time it was in Jacksonville, Florida. According to Robert J. Groden in his book, The Killing of a President, which I've read. Good book. I liked the movie better. That at this meeting, Miltier expressed his pleasure with the success of the assassination. He shook Somerset's hand and he said, well, I told you so. It happened just like I said, didn't it? It happened from a window with a high-powered rifle. That was done the way it was supposed to be done. Now, wait, how is this on record and yet... It's actually, you can read the police report. Was there no follow-up? No. What? What? Yeah. Why? All taken care of. It's all wrapped up. Oswald... Oswald was killed. Now you don't have to worry about it anymore. All done. (laughs) Taken care of. Nothing to see here. You can read a transcript of the Miami PD uh, recording of the Joseph Miltier and William Somerset conversations. And also in those conversations, he talks about uh, an upcoming event to kill Martin Luther King Jr. Oh, my gosh. So when did this become public information? A couple years ago when they had that big release of JFK stuff? It's always been out there. It's been in the Miami Police Department uh, files. For some reason, the Warren Commission did not include this in their report. So weird. Here's another example of something weird. About 10 o'clock in the morning of November 22nd, 1963, a phone call was received by operators in Oxnard, California, which served approximately 12,000 residents in the Southern California town. This call was very odd. The original operator who answered the call, Doris Bliss, summoned the operator, Jean Shores, to pick up the line because she suspected something was wrong after hearing a fuzzy sound and whispering on the line. Okay. The strange call lasted about 10 to 15 minutes, was accompanied by several very strange statements uttered by... An unknown female, but the most shocking was when she whispered, the president is going to be killed at 1010. What? And the operators looked at the clock on the wall. It read 1007 and then 1008. 1,500 miles away in Dallas, JFK's presidential motorcade was due to enter Dealey Plaza at 1210 p.m. Central Time, which is 1010 a.m. Pacific Time. According to Mandeville's blog, the motorcade was scheduled to enter Dealey Plaza at 12.10 p.m., followed by 
a 12.15 p.m. arrival at the trademark where the president was scheduled to deliver a speech. Mm -hmm. But what happened was the motorcade was delayed. This person called back and amended her prediction to account for the 20-minute delay, now saying to the operators, the president is going to die at 10.30. At exactly 12.30 p.m. Central, 10.30 a.m. Pacific in Oxnard, California, the shots rang out in Dealey Plaza and Kennedy was killed. To this day, the unknown female caller has never been identified. Wow. I mean, and that's that's a pretty important piece of information to have to share. It sounds like if it was whispered, it was something that she wasn't supposed to be sharing. A report was filed, but nobody took it seriously. Oh, wow. Now, this came, of course, from a private citizen. But a U.S. Army Ordnance cryptographic code operator, Private First Class Eugene Dinkin, was stationed in Metz, France, when he intercepted and decoded not one, but two messages regarding an upcoming assassination of President Kennedy. The first message he intercepted was in October of 63. The second was on November 2nd of 63, just three weeks before. After reporting this, he discovered the army was going to require him to undergo psychological evaluation. Whoa. Yeah. So rather than passing the information along and... They said, you're crazy. We're going to... Yeah. Dinkin was arrested on November 13th, 1963, after because he went AWOL. Mm -hmm. And after his arrest, he was sent to the Walter Reed Army Medical Center, uh, but not before first being held at the psychiatric hospital. hospital. And Dinkin's attempt to thwart it wasn't even... Didn't even earn a mention in the Warren report. Yet there are military records that back this up. You can research more about Dinkin and his attempt to uh, to warn of the Kennedy assassination. All of that stuff, all of those public records are available online. But he wasn't the only one. There was another code operator, another plot interception. Not much is known about this guy, David Christensen, but very much like Eugene Dinkin, Christensen was a code operator for the military in 1963. And he happened upon information that he was not supposed to know. Oh, my. He intercepted a communication sometime in October of 1963 regarding the plot to kill JFK. And just like Dinkin was ignored and his sanity was called into question. Which I'm sorry, if you're rather than investigating or rather than going, yeah, this is something interesting that we should look into. The extreme of then going, you need to seek medical attention and putting you away, Mm -hmm. potentially, Mm -hmm. makes me feel like that was an effort to shut that down rather than assist the person or look into the information. Shut it down. Yeah, it's weird. Shut it down now. A highly decorated veteran of the Korean War, Richard Case Nagel was a U.S. intelligence operative for the CIA and discovered that there was a conspiracy to assassinate JFK and that Lee Harvey Oswald was marked to be the patsy. Nagel was tasked uh, with attempting to foil the assassination plot up to and including killing the patsy, but instead, because he wanted to remove himself from all involvement in the conspiracy, chose to purposefully get himself arrested by firing a gun near a bank in El Paso, Texas. I'm sorry, what? So he he knew that this was going to happen and was 
supposed to stop it? Like, how? I don't understand. I'm just putting pieces together here. But so these guys decoded these messages and reported it to their authorities. Mm -hmm. Their sanity was called into question, but that information went on to other people. Okay. And Nagel was one of these people that was tasked to try to prevent this from happening. So if they... But he didn't want to get involved. If he was tasked with preventing it from happening, then someone obviously must have taken the communications seriously. So then why would you put the military personnel's sanity into question? That doesn't make any sense. Because the government isn't thinking with one mind here. And the assassination was being carried out by some rogue element of the government. All right. This is how the this particular version of the conspiracy uh, sure, okay. plays out. Then there's the story of Lillian Spangler, who on the 1st of November in 1963 was working at a gift shop in Miami called the Parrot Jungle. A customer came in that she believed was of Cuban descent. And while she was talking with him, the man's conversation turned political and he made comments about shooting Kennedy between the eyes. Oh my. The unknown man said his friend Lee was a sharpshooter and that he served in the military, and that he spoke Russian, and he lived in Texas or Mexico. He wasn't sure. Records don't uh, list Oswald as a sharpshooter necessarily, but he did serve in the Marines, Mm. and he did speak Russian, and he did live in Texas. After the assassination of Kennedy, the uh, Parrot Jungle mystery man was finally identified as Jorge Antonio Martinez Soto. And although he admitted to having conversations with Mrs. Spangler at the Parrot Jungle, he claimed that in regards to those things that he talked about, she simply must have misunderstood him. Eventually, the authorities told uh, Ms. Spangler to just forget about the incident and don't talk to anybody about it. The Warren Commission didn't find that important enough to include in their uh in their report, although it was important enough for them to mention that Jack Ruby's mother wore dentures for some reason. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, that's, huh. And then there's this. 25 minutes before the shots were were fired in Dealey Plaza, a senior reporter of uh, the Cambridge News in England received a telephone call from a man who said, quote, call the American embassy in London for some really big news. And he then hung up. And again, this was about less than half an hour before Kennedy was assassinated. Okay. The incident was reported. The FBI followed up on it. The FBI information dated November 26, 1963 is available. I'm looking at a copy of it right now. I'm not going to read it because it's really long and boring and dry. Okay. But it does establish that uh, this did happen and that it was reported to law enforcement. Okay. And then finally, on the evening before the assassination, and this is more hearsay, a party was being held uh, at oil tycoon Clint Murchison's house in Dallas. Among those in attendance were Vice President Lyndon Johnson, uh, J. Edgar Hoover, the head of the FBI, Mm -hmm. and Johnson's mistress, Madeline Duncan. Rude, but that's fine. Johnson came out from behind a closed door meeting in one of these rooms in the house, and he told Madeline, quote, Those fucking Kennedys will never embarrass me again. That's no threat. That's a promise. Oh, my gosh. As all the vehicles turned onto Elm Street, Johnson, sitting in the rear passenger seat next to his wife and Senator Ralph Yarborough, is said to have ducked just as or before the first shots 
were fired. And if you go back and you look at photographic evidence, he is the only one ducking. Oh, really? Nobody else is. Hmm. He claimed he was shoved down by his Secret Service guy. He said, quote, I startled by a sharp report or explosion, but I had no time to speculate as to its origin because Agent Youngblood turned in a flash immediately after the first explosion, hitting me on the shoulder and shouting to all of us in the back seat to get down. I was pushed down by Agent Youngblood almost in the same moment in which he hit or pushed me. He vaulted over the back seat and sat on me. I was bent over under the weight of Agent Youngblood's body toward Mrs. Johnson and Senator Yarborough. However, Senator Yarborough, who was also riding in the back seat with Johnson, came forward and said this. It just didn't happen that way. It was a small car. Johnson was a big man, tall. His knees were up against his chin as it was. There was no room for that to happen. Yarborough recalled that both Johnson and Youngblood ducked down as the shooting began and that Youngblood never left the front seat. Hmm. Yarborough said Youngblood held a small walkie-talkie over the back of the car seat and that he and Johnson both put their ears to the device. He added, quote, they had it turned down real low. I couldn't hear what they were listening to. Well, that does seem suspicious. There are a lot of unanswered questions. When I think about the JFK assassination, one of the things that I have a really hard time with is that there are three rows of seats in that car. And that doesn't make any gosh darn sense to me. <laughs> so when I picture it, I'm like, but where was Lyndon Johnson even sitting? <laughs> and then I have to go like, oh, yeah, it's a stupid looking car. Well, he was in a, in the car behind. He was the second car in the motorcade. He was behind well, who was the, the car. guy sitting in front of JFK then? That was uh, Governor Conley. Oh, Conley. Okay. Yeah, My right. bad. My bad. Yeah, it was the driver, Conley and his wife, and then JFK and, and Jackie. Okay. I believe. That makes much more sense. In the front car. I mean, still the car doesn't, for yeah. sure. That still looks dumb. <laughs> but So the deeper you dig in into this, the more the unanswered questions accumulate. You can't, we're, we're never going to friggin' know. No one's ever going to know. It certainly does sound suspicious, though. That's what I said. I know. But we can't go on together with suspicious minds. The Gospel According to the Book of Elvis. And now, that thing in the middle. Well, we've all heard the term grammar Nazi. It's someone who corrects a person when they misuse a word. But the greatest grammar Nazi ever was probably the ancient Greek Philitis. If somebody misused a word, he would write page after page after page, explaining why that person was grammatically incorrect. Philitis became so obsessed with this, he rarely ate, and he eventually died of malnutrition. The Box of Oddities with Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids and they live about 3,000 miles away, and my daughter is expecting a child, and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life, Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. 
And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura frames, and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code oddities at checkout. And you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, If you put your pants on, I'll give you some Fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores, and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? (sighs) Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The only podcast that once shot a man for snoring too loud and wound up a New York sports writer. This is The Box of Oddities. We've received a lot of really nice messages over the last week or so. Um, Some talking about how they found us because of Scared to Death. Some saying, guys... 
thank you because I love scared to death. So that's nice knowing that it's going both ways. And then some just saying, hey, you guys should talk about uh, more spooky stuff. Um, we got this message from Keels on Instagram. Hi, Kat and Jethro. My name is Keely. I've been following you guys for a while now. I freaking love your show so much. It's gotten me through some lonely times. So thank you. I was messaging you to give you an idea for a topic I'm learning about in my criminology and psych uni course. Mm. I'm not going to tell you what the, the topics are because I'm going to use them. <laughs> but um, just so cool that, uh, that you're in a criminology and psych course. Um, I am jealous. And I want very much to to be involved in that. I just think it's so cool. Like, it's such a cool thing to to be studying. Uh, If you guys ever come to Australia, I'll be at your show front and center. Please stay safe and sane and keep flying that freak flag. Uh, Thank you so much, Keels. And yes, we very much would like to go to Australia. Thank you. Again, it never ceases to amaze us. How many educated people listen to this silly little podcast? Right. And we don't get corrected more than we do. <laughs> it reminds me of uh, this email that we got from uh, Heather. She said, Kat just talked about uh, hexes. I was born and raised Pennsylvania Dutch, and I have had potatoes placed on warts when I was little. As Kat was talking about it, I thought to myself, huh, oh, so that doesn't work? I then quickly shamed myself for disregarding all the info I learned getting my biology degree. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, of course it works. Hey, our our bodies and our minds are amazing things. And, you know, the placebo effect is a real thing. And so if you believe that it works, sometimes it friggin' can. And I don't know why. My dad used to heal people's warts with pennies. I remember you telling me that. Yeah. That's weird. I know. Anyway, what you got for me? Oh, yeah. We're traveling to the mountain province in the Philippines to Sigata. Uh, Because maybe uh, of lack of transportation, maybe because of uh, lack of willing guides, very few conquistadors came to Sigata during the Spanish era, and a Spanish mission wasn't founded there until 1882. So as a result... Um, This is one of the few places in the Philippines that has preserved its indigenous culture uh, with very little Spanish influence. So many really interesting things that go on in this part of the world. Uh, In Sagata specifically, they've got an underground river. There's Pongas Falls. There's Marlboro Mountain. Multiple caves filled with incredible, what's the word I'm looking for? Strategery? And also the hanging coffins of Echo Valley. So leaving from the center of Sagata, a 20-minute walk will get you to this incredible religious site. It is where the native Igorot would bury their dead. The top of Echo Valley, it's a gorgeous spot with a beautiful view. The hanging coffins are about 20 minutes downhill trek from, from there. Echo Valley's name is uh, appropriate because when you stand at the top of Echo Valley uh, and you you shout, yeah, like it's very echoey. Holy shit! Look at those coffins, oh, coffins, coffins. coffins. Yeah, uh, though uh, you are discouraged from shouting. Most tourists do it anyway, but mm. it it is part of a, a religious sure. place. So yeah, you uh, don't have a hoot nanny in a cemetery. <laughs> Though we have picnicked at a many. So 
The Hanging Coffins. It is uh, believed that the tribal folk in that region believed that putting their dead in steep crevices made their loved ones nearer to the gods. The coffins are made of a hollowed-out log, normally carved by the elderly Igorots before they die. Each cadaver was then smoked throughout a five-day pre-burial feast to avoid fast decomp. Okay. So, like, they, they smoked it like a side of beef. Yes. Right. They, you know, kind of, like, dehydrated them. You want to make sure so that they you're... So, they were doing this during a feast? Yeah. Okay. There, there are a lot of times where they combine eating and preparing their dead sure. for... I would, I would be hesitant if I were there to go, mmm, something smells delicious. <laughs> Hanging the coffins on high, elevated cliffs is the traditional way of burying qualified individuals. Now, what makes them qualified isn't exactly known. It is known that you have to have been married and had grandchildren. That's all I know. Really? That's kind of a low bar. It, it, yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. What about if you're just kind of on the cusp? Would they be willing to hang you from a cliff without a coffin? Maybe, you know. Like if you had a domestic partnership, but not a marriage? Right. Yeah, or, that, that uh, kind of thing. if you had a, a, a grandchild fetus, but it hadn't shot out the... Right. Yeah. Hmm. They just hang you off the side. Like, it'd be like, uh, like some really grotesque bird feeder. Uh, you know, that's interesting. Uh, hmm. Not sure about the details. As I said, it's a little iffy, the ins and outs, what it means to be qualified. Uh. So the, <laughs> the coffins are hung in place through use of projecting beams. Basically, they hammer these beams into the limestone hillside and then set the coffins on top of the beams. Another reason that they believe that this became a traditional way of burying their dead was to protect the bodies from natural disasters like earthquakes and floods, and also to keep the corpses away from wild animals. Now, I've heard that when you're burying things, it's good to put a layer of hot sauce on top of the, the soil that you're covering the dead with. To keep animals from... To keep animals from foraging, digging, digging sure. on in. Right. Um, so this saves them a lot of hot sauce, which is nice, I think. You can never have too much. Alongside these coffins, you'll often see chairs strapped to the side of the mountain. And this is part of the tradition. Oftentimes, the bodies will be placed in the chairs on the mountainside as part of the, the burial. In one case, according to a traveler's blog, there was a chair strapped to the side of the limestone hillside. There was a full-grown adult in the chair. Knees had been forced up to the chin, covered in a white cloth, and bound using rope. Elders believed that placing the body in that fetal position symbolized the start of a new life. So you oh. come into the world in a fetal position, and you come out of the world in a fetal position. That's interesting. Again, according to this traveler's blog, while the body is being carried to the final resting place, whether it be a chair or a hanging coffin, it's considered good luck if the dead's blood is sprinkled onto you. It's like getting shit on by a bird. They say it's good luck. Uh, in this case, it's your loved one's inside juices. It means that you'll enjoy bountiful harvests and much success in life. And because of that, everyone tries to touch the body for good luck while they're in the process of... How did that tradition come into being? There was some point where 
a guy got some help. He was preparing a body, mm-hmm. and the guy got blood all over him. He's like, "Oh my god!" I got blood. And the uh, senior guy said, "No, no, that's fine. That's that's good luck." You know, just so he'd continue and finish the job. Mm. And so it just got passed on from from master to apprentice. Or maybe they found that the person who got blood on them actually did have good luck. And so they associated Uh, that with that incident of of getting blood on them. Put two and two together. There's also a tradition of while uh, in the midst of this funeral process, there is a feast involved. And the, the I was going to say policy, but I guess it's probably not a policy per se. Uh, there's no laminated sheet on the cork board <laughs> in, the, in the kitchen that says this is the policy. But um, part of the process is that you feast while you're you're doing this funeral mm. and but you don't wash your hands in between handling Ooh. the body and the food. It's understood that that's something that you don't do. You Wow. You keep those clammy hammies. I'm I'm going to go ahead and skip the buffet line here. Yeah. I'm good, thank you. So we've talked about the So we've talked about some of the other traditional burial styles in the Philippines. One of them is the the zombie walk. I think it was called the Tinguian funeral, uh, where people dress the dead up in their finest clothes. They sit them in a chair. They give them a cigarette or two. Right. The dead will sit out for a couple of weeks, and then they'll rebury them. Right. And 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 this isn't just before the the initial burial. They they do it every so often. They go and dig them up and mm-hmm. put a fresh dress on grandma. And that's and then pack her pipe full of the backy. There are several ways that the this kind of process is represented in the Philippines. There are three different stages of burial. So there's your initial burial. There's when you're being dug up and reburied for whichever spiritual moment you're having, and then there's your final burial. And oftentimes that will include uh, what's called a funeral jug. And sometimes that's involving taking other people's body parts and putting them in your jug to complete your body. You know, it's like it's like a really morbid swear jar. It's it's in no way like that. Uh, I thought of it as more like a Mr. Potato Head, but um, either way, it's incredibly fascinating. And even though you know we're making light of this, and it is so strange from our point of view, um, it's something that these people hold very dear, and it is. Though a lot of the the people in this region will now be buried in a more Western style cemetery, Mm -hmm. there are still those who opt to be buried this way. And so uh, there are hanging coffins that are centuries old. And then every once in a while, you'll spot one that's from like 96. Really? Yeah. That's incredible. Like I said, there is a long-standing tradition of culture and indigenous influence that they really do try to hold on to. And I think that's incredible. That whole Mr. Potato Head thing got me thinking, is there a way maybe that I could incorporate that into my funeral? Because oh, I'm always yeah. looking for something, no. you know, unique and, and novel. Not. Like like maybe have my nose replaced with Mr. Potato Heads and then just put his, his little pipe in my mouth. Mm-hmm. Something like that. Yeah. Would Should be we fun. get you some big glasses and a, sure. and a faux mustache? That'd be great. And you can go, wow, wow, wow. No, I won't because I'll be dead. But you could do that for me. Oh, yes, Absolutely. I'll lift your glasses up and down and I'll go, wow, wow, wow. Thank you. When you're dead. I'm going to wait. I'm going to write that in in my final 
wishes and demands. Yeah. Perfect. <clears throat> All right. <laughs> Listen, you are going to have a boring, sad day, just like everyone else. No. <laughs> <laughs> I want there to be something at my funeral that involves a massive display of pyrotechnics. <laughs> Or I'm coming back, and well, I'm going to haunt your ass. <laughs> Knowing our neighbors, pyrotechnics are inevitable. That's that's true. <laughs> yeah, any hoozle. <laughs> Can we talk about these face masks? Yes. All right. So we got a gifty in the mail from Yvonne, and this is magical. It made me a little weepy, actually, and I don't really... Uh, anyway, um, they are beautiful, very festive face masks. And she sent us this message. She got them at the historic downtown San Antonio Market Square. And uh, she talked about how we wanted to go to do a live show in Texas. But because of COVID, we, you know, everything yeah. just right to a standstill. So she sent us a little bit of San Antonio Aww. by way of these masks. And also some Fiesta medals that apparently there is like a, a big, San Antonio Fiesta uh, normally in April and local companies make Fiesta medals that uh, people collect you know and then oh, it's kind of like very Disney cool. pins kind of like that yeah, yeah. their Fiesta medal uh, includes Joe Fiesta who appears to be riding a pinata like a wrecking ball <laughs> so uh, we got ourselves some San Antonio Fiesta medals and uh, beautiful masks and we just we thank you so much for thinking of us and sending us a little bit of San Antonio, and we love you. Yeah, I we, love the masks, and we nice. we really need to get some thank you cards to send out to people that that send us stuff because we we really do appreciate you taking the time to do that. That's it's really sweet. Anyway, I guess that's it. So uh, we will see you next time. Oh, just wrapping that right the heck up. Yeah, huh? yeah. Okay. As we say in Maine, right straight over there. Right straight over there, Bob. Bob. All right. Um, we'll see you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. <laughs> Proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com On Facebook at Facebook.com slash Box of Oddities Podcast On Twitter at Box of Oddities And Instagram at Box of Oddities Podcast Copyright 2020 All Rights Reserved Two, three, four Give me a level Seventeen Thirty-two does that date have any significance? No. Maybe not for you, but that, no. was, that was my senior prom. Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. 
It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.